Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Brad. Good. How are you? I'm good. Yourself? Doing well. Doing well. You know, actually, you don't necessarily look like your brother, but you sure sound like him. We do sound alike. <laughs> we look alike, too, most of the time. But uh, Are you identical twins? We are. Okay. My wife thinks that I have a disease where I can't recognize faces. I feel like I I can see somebody and feel like I'm supposed to know them, but then rule it out and say, no, I've never seen that person in my life. <laughs> my wife is saying, yeah, that's so-and-so. You met them last week. Hey, Austin, how you doing? I'm doing good, Paul. Good to see you, Jim. Hey. Are you out camping? I'm in Maine. Yeah? What are you doing up there? Just just airing out. Yeah? <laughs> I'm I'm in front of a general store and ice cream, and they have uh, Wi-Fi. Oh, good deal. Good deal. Maybe you can uh, raise the level of the conversation there in Maine. Hey, guys. Good <laughs> evening. Hey, Matt. Welcome. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you guys? How do we know it's you, Matt? We don't. <laughs> Origin, David Bentley Hart, Paul Axton. What other keywords can I give? Uh, what, you have to share all the tweets you shared today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I shared a lot of Volgakov uh, tweets today. That's true. I did the, the St. Francis today, too, which I thought. Oh, was yeah, great. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The St. Francis. It's his today's, uh, feast day. Today's his death day, death week, supposedly. One of my favorite things about the uh, the Episcopal Church that my wife and I got married in was they had St. Francis of Assisi Day. They had a Sunday dedicated to St. Francis. What you did on that day is you bring your pets to the church and okay. they bless, you know, they, I mean, so there's like dogs and cats and birds and cages and ferrets and all sorts of all sorts of different animals and they you know what i mean they bless every animal that would never ever happen uh in the orthodox church where i go now we're too stuffy i think for that i think my daughter was talking she was going to take her starter dough to get blessed oh wow (laughs) that's amazing that's not uh, any living organism right yeah that's right that's right i love it i love it (laughs) yeah People always ask if the you know if the animals will be saved, and I always think, well, yeah. Have you ever read the story about the ark? It's right there in the first part of the Bible where all the animals get saved. But anyway. hopefully not the mosquitoes. Yeah, hopefully they're all annihilated along with the wicked. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I know it's Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Those of you who are here for the first time. Introduce yourselves. My name is Brad. I'm Brian's twin brother. Y'all seen me before. It's just him. I am uh, live in Mississippi. I live on the coast of Mississippi. I am currently in between jobs as an RN. I became a registered nurse about uh, two years ago. I was a full-time pastor until three years ago. So I went through nursing school, but after 18 years of United Methodist ministry here in Mississippi. Glad to be here to have you twin thank you hey brian (laughs) i was just saying to brad i i really have real low facial recognition and so to me you guys don't look at all alike. besides the fact that you're identical twins (laughs) if you saw us 
in different angles or different contexts. It might be different. Yeah. We fooled a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see, Rob. Can you tell us about yourself? Yes. Uh, good eye from down under. <laughs> it's um, ten in the morning here in uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, yes, I'm a uh, Baptist pastor at a Chinese and Australian Baptist church. Uh, I have a Spanish background as well, so it's all very confusing, really. I've been uh, in Christian ministry, yeah, for a while. Um, student ministry uh, pioneers, mission agency. I think I met Paul and Matt and Alan. Hey, Alan, and the gang. But three three years ago two and a half so it's been really good really enjoyed and david as well yeah been really good and uh, good to be here okay good yeah good to see you rob you're looking good buddy <laughs> looking good, good i'm good practically you, going I'm white <laughs> yeah i'm catching up to paul i'm not behind yeah. paul <laughs> oh that's the very, goal we all <laughs> we all have to have a goal <laughs> very distinguished alan you look like you're getting gray hair is that just my screen <laughs> You had you had a child and suddenly you turned gray. It's my background. I changed it. <laughs> he's shimmering light. I think. Yeah, yeah. He's radiating. <laughs> what I thought I'd do tonight, I'm going <laughs> to say a few things. In Bear's book, there was one line, and that kind of sent me down a path. But it brought me back to a modern biblical interpreter. Hans Fry. It put me on to Hans Fry. And so I'm not necessarily following Fry all the way. But Bear in this section raises, and I think it's a key question that is raised in Scripture Who do you say that I am? And that's his point of departure. How you answer this question is the hypothesis. This is what we're claiming is the gospel, is the answer to this question. The other word that we've used here is the analogy of faith, which is what Paul uses in Romans. Uh, we could just say it's the scriptures, according to the scriptures, also a phrase from Paul when he's recounting, you know, the death and resurrection of Christ. And in each phrase in Corinthians, he says, according to the scriptures. But I want to add his line here, and I thought it was a significant line, and that is that I think the hypothesis that is the answer to that question entails Christ's presence. It entails an encounter with Christ. So the identity of Christ is the unifying point of Scripture, but this identity is synonymous with his presence in our life. It's with the, the presence to the reader, to the believer. That is, this question about Christ's identity directly pertains to the ones doing the identifying, right? His identity entails his presence in the life of the one identifying it. And of course, this is what Bear notices, but I think this is, we could almost say this is a theme that the, an implicit theme in someone like Ignatius of Antioch, that in dealing with the heretics, you know, when we go wrong about the identity of Christ, and, you know, they, we have two or three ways, 
I suppose there's an infinite number of ways to go wrong, but at least uh, docetism, uh, adoptionism. What was the false teaching that I missed? I mean, the false teaching is, is he's just simply man, or he's just God, or the combination that he's man and God, but two different beings. Yeah, that's it. That's it. They separate. Yeah. Huh? And, and Bear's point there was, actually, it's, uh, it was Irenaeus's point, that in all of these systems, I think Irenaeus may have actually been talking about Gnosticism, you lose the presence of God. So Christ's life and presence are rendered in his identity and this identifying work. I know this entails a circularity, you know, reading scripture through the gospel and the gospel through scripture, but all of it is revolving around Christ, of course, and this includes this circulation, we might call it. It's inclusive of the life of the believer. So kind of on the order of a circulatory system, but what is being circulated is the life and presence of Christ. That is, when we identify him, one reads through the lens of the identity of Christ, and we come to the gospel, but this exegesis of and through Christ directly pertains to the you, you know, in who do you say that I am, that this constitutes an encounter with Christ. So the hermeneutical lens of the apostolic preaching, the gospel, the analogy of faith, it produces a symbolic coherence. You know, it's calling upon the symbolism, the types, the tropes, the context of the Hebrew scriptures, and the gospel then has its unity in that, or, or that has its unity in the gospel, rather but is applied to Scripture, and I thought this was a key point of Bear's, that what it, we're exegeting is not Scripture, ultimately, but what we're exegeting is Christ. And the encounter with Christ, or the presence of Christ in the life of the exegete, is part, I mean, that's really what this is all about. And of course, by saying presence, that entails salvation. That it, that also points to what's missing, I think, you know, in the, the kind of the lack of presence. That's, I think, a kind of working hypothesis that goes back to what I was saying last week. And I don't think Bear missed this. In other words, I think this is very much there in Bear, which makes me think, well, you know, last week I questioned whether he got the ethic and the peace. I, I don't think John Bear is a pacifist, and pacifism, Matt, tell us about pacifism in the Orthodox Church. I know it's not completely abs absent, right? But it's not, neither is it prevalent. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's about it. You nailed it. There are streams. I mean, I'm a part of a, an Orthodox fellowship, uh, you know, peace fellowship. So there are definitely, you know, sort of still strands like forging plowshares. <laughs> you know, Us Orthodox Christians, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this describes also, I got step one down. And by the way, that, you know, Hans Frey has written an entire book. This is his approach. And I think it's a significant thing. And I don't think he's, in other words, I think it's very much there. It's there in the New Testament, but it's very much there in the church fathers. But then the next thing is this describes the authority of Scripture, right? That we're really dealing as, as the identity of Christ takes hold. As we come to that, we're also dealing 
with the authority and the way that authority is exercised in the life of the believer. So the author or authorization or authority is immediately present in the one answering, who do you say that I am? It's not simply a, a historical judgment. It may entail history. It's not simply a critical assessment of text, you know, the scriptures. It's not an acknowledgement of institutional authority of the church. It may entail that. That is the authority of, of history, the authority of scripture, the authority of church pertains, but I think it pertains indirectly to the fundamental and primary authority found in the identity of Christ, and as this directly pertains to the believer. So the particular nature of the presence of Christ is mediated, we could say, through, you know, the church, through history, through scripture, but these are not substitutes or alternative authorities, but the authority that they, you know, that is derived ultimately from the gospel, which immediately takes hold in the Christ's presence in the, in the believer. Can you hear me? Uh-huh. All the way from Maine. So what I'm hearing you say is like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a, a wheel that has a hub, like a wagon wheel, and these spokes surround Christ. There's a person in the middle of these spokes, and these spokes can convey or channel or carry the um, presence. Is that too big a word? The presence of Christ in the believer, um, or am I am I off am I off track here? In other words, and how to nuance this? I'm trying to nuance it very carefully in the way that I'm saying it. In other words, we don't want to take away from any of these authorities. But neither do we want to simply equate these authorities with what is the ultimate authority, which is the real authority from which everything else derives authority. So the apostolic preaching, scripture, church, history, these become a part of, uh, a part of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. Let me go through them and maybe it'll, I'll clarify it. If we, for example, place primary authority on history, and boy, you know, we can't do without history, but if we place the primary authority on the historical truth of the gospel, we may imagine a Christ that is, you know, that, that we get at the truth of the gospel through the truth of the history. And this is in no way to, you know, I'm not saying that's not important, I'm just saying that in this instance, the primary point is the truth of Christ that entails the truth of the history, but arriving at the truth of the history does not give you the gospel. The history does not subject Christ, but Christ subjects history. It's relativized by Christ. And so, sir, and I, and I don't mean by this that we can extract you know, obviously the death and resurrection of Christ, we can't extract that from history, and history is a part of his identity, but his identity is determinative of this history, and not vice versa. So temporality, the past, the situation of life, you know, those things do not take precedence over his life or determine his identity. You know, think here of the historical critical method. The picture is, oh, if we can get at the history behind the text, 
that we establish the truth of the text as if the history is the primary thing. No, I think that's mistaken. We may need to do that. It's not a complete yeah. rejection of that, but that's not the point of reading the Bible. I think Bear had a paragraph that uh, touched on what you're saying. There's like an infinite regression, like philosophy or Yeah, you whatever. never, you, you want to get to the intent of the author, the historical situation. Uh, you know, you could, that study really just never ends. And of course, you've never gotten to this main point, and that is Christ. You've never gotten to the identity of Christ. In other words, I'm taking this question, who do you say that I am, as the point of Bible reading, that we're to be able to, to pick that up. Now, I'm, I'm happy to be challenged on this, and I, I, I hope I'm not misunderstood here, there is a history of Christ in which time and history and humanity are interwoven and inseparable from the person of Christ encountered in the gospel. But the history per se is not primary, right? The truth of his history, that's certainly a necessity. I'm in no way setting that aside, but this historical truth is not the fullness of the truth as it takes hold, and I think this is where we always land as it takes hold in the life of the believer. Who do you say that I am? In other words, where this takes hold is in the response to that question. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. This resonates a lot with the way I was reading Bear this week as well. But there's one linchpin thought that has been kind of new to me. I think you've been talking about it for a while, but it seems like it's really helpful here is the idea of Christ's presence in his word as the word of God, the word going forth and the word that we return to uh, that was delivered in the beginning. The very presence of God is extended and sent out into the world through the, the proclamation, through the, the word. He is the word made flesh. The hypothesis, the confession of who he is, he's man and God. That's kind of the very basis, basic of it. The very word itself, as it's formed in our mouths and in our reading, of course, with the company of the Holy Spirit, it's God's presence in the world going forth. And that's, you know, just a couple of weeks old in my mind as, as really meaningful and powerful. And it really comes into play. And I think the heart of what you're saying. Yeah, the, the kerygma, in other words, the proclaimed word, that, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. It's there in the, the scriptures, it, the, but the apostolic preaching precedes scripture. I can't remember, was it Ignatius or who says, well, actually, Christianity precedes Judaism. And of course, what he meant is that Judaism derives its meaning from the gospel, just as Christianity derives its meaning from the gospel. Yeah, and uh, that's it, Brian, that in some way the proclamation, the kerygma, uh, the idea of a living word that is heard and received, and, and of course the apostolic preaching constitutes scripture, constitutes the inspiration. It is the uh, unification of Old and New Testament, and that's what it means according to the scriptures, that you only get according to the scriptures once you have the actual events in the life of Christ. Paul, one of my former professors, would call all this the Christological fallacy. 
Yes, I know him well. Yes. Yeah. I um I remember this was this was drilled in into me. Then what happened is is you begin to, you know, you, you kind of get into the critical thinking on going through the old testament and especially the old testament, right? Um, we're not really looking for Jesus in there. We're just there's just simply some, hey, look, Jesus is coming, and that's it. Whereas these early church fathers seem to really see Jesus, I mean, just on every page. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Dave, and, and I've spent years recovering. We both studied under the same guy, and think of Paul. Do you think that Paul finds Christ in the Old Testament? You know, just go through. Of course he does. That's his whole reading. What did uh, your professors mean by the Christological fallacy? What, what, what was the Christological fallacy according to them? Run it down, Dave. I knew you would ask that. <laughs> Not you, <laughs> Me. I didn't know that you were going to ask that. Um, I, I think the Christological fallacy was to try to see Christ in, in the scriptures here. Uh, I don't terrible think, thing. Terrible. <laughs> very, a very terrible thing. Christ doesn't necessarily interpret the scriptures. Uh, per se. There's certainly Christ has his importance in his salvific work, but as far as in interpreting and um, understanding scriptures, uh, you can't read Christ through the Old Testament. You can't, maybe even some of the New Testament, I don't know, but I know especially the Old Testament. But it's been a long time, but I just remember that that whole phrase. I mean, I think I had to read a book on it and, you know, be judged on it. So... Uh, Paul, you can do a whole lot better than me. You're, you're no, it's, it, it's as bad as it sounds, uh, <laughs> which gives you an idea of how much ground we lost by getting an education. And this person really had a sway of a whole whole denomination of sorts. You know, he was the N.T. Wright of our movement of sorts, although he wouldn't understand N.T. Wright. You know the the real the history that really counts. Uh, it ends on Pentecost, and we pick it up again in the 19th century in the United States. Well, because we had to correct all these right. uh, fools, Orthodox fools, Matt, uh, and so <laughs> just so, kidding, Matt. So he he may have attributed it to. Oh, I said, oh, that's that's that neo orthodoxy. But of course, it's not just neo-orthodoxy. This is just the way that the early church fathers read the the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. But of, but of course, I think that it doesn't change in the New Testament. But the, the thing that you're going to replace it with is the historical critical method. So you have to read every scripture in, you know, in the context of the particular piece of literature that it is. You know, you have to understand the situation, the author, uh, get to the history, get to what his intent is. And the Bible is inerrant, and what it means that the Bible is inerrant, the history is inerrant, the uh, science is inerrant. There are no mistakes in the Bible. In other words, that claim is the claim of truth. So, you know, when we talk about a biblicism, you know, I think David and I, this was what we were nurtured on, was a kind of biblicism in which actually the book, the text, the letter became the primary thing. And of course, what we're missing is Jesus. (laughs) 
just that one thing. It's you know, other than that, it's a good system. But it, understand, this is the historical critical method. You know, that may be what uh, conservatives are and fundamentalists are doing. But understand, that's also what theological liberalism, you know, is caught up in. Uh, the idea that the, the history becomes the history or the, it's either the history or the text becomes the main thing. What I'm describing, I, I'm just describing, I think, what the New Testament is doing in its reading in, in Scripture, but I think it's very much what the apostolic fathers are doing. That is that when they read Scripture, when Ignatius is talking about that, I thought this was interesting, and Bear points this out. He undoubtedly has the uh, epistles of Paul, or there is no canon of the New Testament yet, but he reflects understanding of the apostle Paul, uh, probably of John. You know, he's uh, acquainted with Polycarp. In fact, you know, Polycarp is a direct disciple of John. But Bear's point is, yeah, he, he reflects a knowledge of this, but he doesn't quote scripture. He doesn't quote Paul. But in fact, what he's doing, I think, is what we've been describing. He's proclaiming the gospel, and that doesn't require. In other words, that's the proclamation of the gospel is not simply referencing scripture, but it's something more than that. And, you know, with Ignatius, it's going to be a challenge of docetism. Uh, you know, and so that that actually the proclamation of the gospel will, in certain periods, take on a particular emphasis that it may not have had in a, in another situation. So maybe the history one is easy. So history, and even the history of Christ, is not the presence of Christ found in His identity. We in no way want to undermine the history. I'm in no way doing that. I'm just saying that's not the main thing. And then the, the next one, you know, I think we could say the same thing or similar thing with Scripture. That is to place primary authority on the text or the book. And here, the apostolic fathers, you know, actually, they're, going, they're almost going to identify. They're going to say, well, the book is the incarnation. But I think there's a way of looking at the book or Scripture, and we still miss the authority that it's derived from, and that is the gospel. Certainly the gospel is in Scripture, but Christ is not subject to Scripture any more than he is subject to history or to the church. But Christ, Christ is primary. But if we make Scripture primary, Christ may be made to fit the context, and that's exactly what happens. You know, the context of a particular book, the context of a particular circumstance, rather than the context of the gospel, the context of Christ. And so it's made to fit the circumstance, rather than that circumstance being understood through the gospel. I think we're to read all of Scripture through Christ, through the gospel. And there may be places that, you know, uh, it's not obviously, uh, you know, this is Origen's point, but it's really there. The this, you know, the apostolic fathers had no trouble with this. We, we've tied authority so much to the words, to the text, but they understood, no, the authority is with Christ. 
you know, the example, I think I used this last week, but it's such a good example, that Paul is going to challenge the authority of Peter. Well, they're both apostles. On what basis does Paul, you know, when Peter comes up to Antioch and refuses to eat with the Gentiles, well, I'm sure glad Axton is here just absorbing all this good, you know, conversation. Uh, I mean, I can just see his brain is going to, uh, the formation that's taking place here. <laughs> He's already crying. Oh, oh, sorry. You know, so Paul challenges Peter. He goes to the council in Jerusalem, and he argues that we should allow Gentiles into the church without them becoming Jews, that all of what he's doing, he's arguing, he's, you know, uh, Paul never, and none of the apostles just say, hey, man, I'm an apostle. Their appeal is to the gospel. And so even an apostle that fails to live up to apostolic tradition, apostolic preaching, who fails to live up to the gospel, can be challenged. That's the, their, their authority does not reside in some station. Their authority resides in that they have become the repository of the gospel. You know, even with them, it's evident in the way that Paul writes letters. You know, why would he write letters that argue, that use, he, he even says, I'm bragging now. You guys got me to bragging. Uh, I'm being a fool. I'm speaking hyperbolically. But he's willing to argue. He's willing to engage because the nature of the authority that even an apostle exercises is with an appeal to the gospel. So it's not that Scripture per se. Christ is the unifying center of Scripture. Christ is the hypothesis of Scripture. And, the, and what we mean by Christ, you know, we, we have to fill in the details, and the, the, we'll do this as we go through. Ignatius also gives us this, you know, these long paragraphs on what this rule of faith amounts to, but it's inclusive of the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But this reality precedes Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. So Christ and Scripture are certainly they're no more separable than Christ and history, not trying to separate them, but it is Christ and his identity that constitutes Scripture as an authority. Mm. Seems like uh, Ignatius gets to this, or you got to it in asking us about authority in the Word in Ignatius in that question number five. So I know we'll come back to it. Something emerged for me in trying to answer that question and, and recognizing the Word going forth and the unity that it brings primarily to the apostolic authority. It's not an inherent kind of authority necessarily, but by analogy, I think, is the way I said it, the bishops, presbyters of the second century that he was talking about, there's some really interesting phrase, uh, phrases that came in what Ignatius was saying. Yeah, yeah. And, then, you know, what we're saying now is pertinent to the way church authority works, too. Mm -hmm. and, and Ignatius is very much into, you know, boy, hey, obey the bishop. But nonetheless, and this is clear and bare, that 
what he's giving precedent to is still the gospel. Read, tell us what your answer on that. Okay, yeah, I I felt like there was a lot more to to dwell with in this, but the way I I answered the fifth question is, which is uh, describe Ignatius's picture of authority in the Word, and then the picture of his taking up the Word and his martyrdom. Ignatius's picture of authority was an analogy. The only authority is the word proclaimed, yet the unity and solidarity around that word indeed indicates a structure and an authority that extends outward insofar as it comes from the word itself, which brings the unity, rather than any inherent authority in bishops, presbyters, and deacons. The Father, Christ, and his apostles make up a unity of authority that is based on the apprehension of that proclaimed word. By analogy, the bishop, deacon, presbyters, and church make up a similar unity based upon the word delivered to them by the, by the apostles. And then the second part was short. Ignatius saw his own impending martyrdom as analogous to the death of Christ. The connection between the two deaths is also very real, as it is the word of God present in both that unifies them. Yeah, everybody get Brian's his point there. Uh, and a bear, I, you know, I, I think uh, handles this beautifully. He says there is no apostolic succession. He, he does talk about the structure and authority of the church. But this structure and authority, the unity of it, again, is derived from the kerygma, from the apostolic preaching. Paul, I, I want to say, I think Kierkegaard's Philosophical Fragments addresses the nature of truth. I haven't read it. I've just heard some talks on it. So I was going to hopefully look at it before next week. But I just wanted to mention um, Kierkegaard's understanding of truth is like what you're saying. It's not in the text. It's in the person. And the way he puts it is it's in truth is encounter. And you, you've used that word already, but I think that's just a bridge uh, to a closer uh, in history philosopher that addresses this, and he specifically does it in relation to calling Jesus the teacher. Teachers today in our classes or schools will teach us a subject, but Jesus comes and teaches himself, and you can't learn the subject without him teaching it to you. He's the truth. He is the subject. He's the teacher. In the encounter is everything. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, Brad. And I, Kierkegaard gets this right in another way, and that is, you know, we uh, as I'm describing this, we could go the wrong direction with, with this and imagine a kind of modern, you know, oh, this is, uh, uh, and when we say person or, or I have a personal relationship with Jesus, I mean, that, in part, that's what we're talking about, but you can take that in a wrong way in imagining that your personhood is already established prior to meeting Christ. And Kierkegaard no. gets this right. He understands, oh, what you have, apart from the one who establishes the relationship, he goes through, well, I, I, I relate myself to myself, and I'm in the relation to... The, you know, he goes through all that, but what he's ultimately saying is there's despair, there's angst, and that is the reality of the human person apart from what we're describing. So we are talking about this 
uh, this personal apprehension, but you understand it's also the simultaneous apprehension of our own personhood. So to talk about it in terms of presence, and I, I don't know if you all are, are getting the full, you know, postmodern resonance with that. This is what, you know, Derrida is always talking about presence. I mean, he's quite ingenious in, in describing this and saying, you know, what we imagine we have in language or, you know, and then you can go, he just does it with text after text. It can be a philosophical text. It really doesn't matter what the text is that we're always in pursuit of presence, uh, you know, self-presence. We want, and what that means is, well, we want to be because we ain't. In some way, there's something lacking. And, you know, this is the, the Cartesian cogito, I think, therefore I am. There's the attempt to establish self-presence in thinking. And, of course, that's the frustration, that's the futility of modernity. So when I'm saying the word presence, this is the only presence that's truly made available to us. In other words, I think that who Christ is, the identity of Christ, and, you know, we have to include a kind of Trinitarian identity in this. We have to include all that Christ is, really, you know, in a sense, to understand the sense in which that uh, it, it implies presence. And there, then, we obtain life. There we, you know, if you're thinking of the, the triad that Paul sets up between the law, the law of the mind, the law of the body, the law of death, that, well, now death is displaced by life. The ego is displaced by Christ. The law is displaced by Abba, Father. So that here is the constitution of a person. And so when I'm saying presence, personhood is brought to us. You know, that is the gift that we're really describing is that we now have ourselves in Christ. I don't think we have ourselves. Uh, I don't think we can access ourselves. We can't establish ourselves. We would try. I mean, that's the human project. I want to throw in one more thing since it's on that vein, as um, Bear mentions a couple of times, you said it, Paul, that we're not just interpreting scripture, we're interpreting, well, we're taking the hypothesis. I look at it as sort of like a, the lens, that, that confession is the lens that reinterprets the Old Testament. It interprets for us experience. Of course, it's how we interpret the New Testament rightly, but it's also, like Bear says, we're interpreting ourselves. We're taking this identity this uh, hypothesis, this understanding of God as Jesus as God and man, and we see ourselves rightly through it. So uh, that's the, the personal element and the presence of God in, in the encounter of him in that hypothesis. That, that seems pretty stark, and Bear only mentions it a couple of times in the first of the, I think, the very early parts of both, both readings we've done so far, both weeks. Yeah, that this made me think of Matt von Schuch, your answer, where you talk about the ontological reality. Can you read your answer, that question and answer? You know, this is the way Ignatius talks when he uses the word spirit. There's a bit of ambiguity, but I think what he actually means is the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the life of God. And of course, that spirit is part of 
the tripartite self. He will talk about the soul, body, and spirit as the completion of the human person. But of course, I think what he means is, yeah, and it's participation in the Holy Spirit that you get the three, the fullness of the three, that you get the fullness of life. I mentioned it twice. The second, and they both deal with the, your questions about salvation. So uh, The one where I said, this is shocking. <laughs> I said, yeah, that the, the Son of God was in flesh for our salvation, as Arrhenius expresses in his expounding his hypothesis of Scripture, points to Jesus as medicine of life who cures humanity of corruption and death. Jesus used human, humankind by sharing our nature and offering for us to share his divine nature. By nature, we are creatures who we suffer corruption, but by grace through Christ, we become incorruptible. The two theological axioms, as Baird describes them, from which this model of salvation works are one, that only God saves and God is at work in his son, Jesus. And two, that it is only as a human being that God can save. It is as an enfleshment of an enfleshed human that the divinity of God in Christ participates in our human nature, nature voluntarily experiences death, filling death with life, and then returning to the Father with our human nature. God's for, uh, cure for humanity is not about the human being's status before God. The cure is ontological in that it changes our very being from created to uncreated by grace. And then in dealing with the false teachings, I also note you know, why they were both wrong particularly if God is not, if Jesus is not really human, then humanity has not been cured. God cures us from the inside out, ontologically changing our nature from finite to infinite. If he has not assumed the human nature, our very being has not been cured as we are left untouched by God. What is the name for this? Theosis. You beat me to it. I wanted you to shine. That was your chance. Yeah. Yeah. I knew the answer to the question was theosis when you asked Matt what the answer was. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's that's it, right? And Matt, well, that was Maximus, right? That you were just, uh, I mean, man, uncreated by grace. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, I, you know, this has kind of made me talk differently. The old farmers in the church, they can't get over the idea that, that we're mortal. But in a sense, I can accommodate that understanding and say, well, certainly we were made for immortality. And so our condition is mortal, but our, our telos is immortality. You know, were we made for mortality? No, I don't think so. We were made for immortality. I, you know, I've spent years trying to emphasize, but we don't have that innately. We get that from God. If we have it innately, you know, I think that's part of why we end up with infernalism, because even God can't destroy us. Uh, oh, isn't that part of the point of, of your work is that, well, what we've created is a construct. What we've created is the ego, the, the whole tripartite sort of identity that you describe in your book. In other words, like what God has created is good. It's, you know, it's eternal. It's uh, it's his own image, right? It's something made in his own image, and so therefore, we can talk about the you know pre-eternal humanity or, or whatever else. But the point is, is that what we've created is a fiction apart from Christ. Is your work? Yeah, actually, I just got a a guy that has interviewed me in the past. I at first, I he wanted to interview me again. He said, "I want to talk to you about your work in conjunction with Marshall McLuhan." 
And I, I thought, oh my, where, I have no idea where this is going. And I realized, oh, what he's thinking is that kind of the manufacturing of consent that is the media is, is really a kind of fiction on the order of the fiction that we're always playing with. We generate idolatrous fictions. Where our life is kind of centered on that. It's funny, I was thinking about that uh, Marshall McLuhan and the medium is, is the message in regards to what they were saying about Christ as revealed and revealer at the same time. In a sense, Christ is the medium, is the message. Yeah, I, th I think Bart is helpful on this. I understand the limitations. He says, you know, who, that, that God is the revealer, there's the revelation, and there's the revealedness, and that describes the Trinity, uh, that God is communication, God is revelation. I think rightly understood, you know, putting it in the, the context, and obviously there's a problem that, you know, Bart isolates this understanding from a kind of understanding of creation as a whole, you know, he, he limits it to the mode of salvation. And so I think when we get to Maximus, that's what Maximus does. He just, that, oh no, we're, we're talking about everything. Yeah. The, the third one here, I've said, well, we could have, we could put the emphasis on the history. We could put the emphasis on scripture, but so too the church and that we could place primor, primary authority in the institution, in the hierarchy, in the body of believers, but that may be to also miss that the church derives its authority from Christ and the gospel. Life in the body is constituted by Christ, and, and the identity of Christ is located in apostolic preaching. And so this preaching certainly cannot be separated from the church any more than it can be separated from Scripture and history, but so too with this authority to make church or the church the authority will be to miss the immediate import of Christ's identity in our life. So the apostles and the church, they don't determine Christ, but they are determined by him. And I think that, that actually means something, just as it does in regard to Scripture, I think it means something in regard to church, that the authority of the church may sometimes fail us. Maybe. <laughs> that should be clear to us. And of course, this is the grand tragedy, that I, there's none of us that are immune from this, because just every group of Christians is just in crisis, because people seem to be caught up in a kind of authoritarianism that is being abused by the authorities of the church for a variety of misuses. So the apostles, the church, you know, it's Christ. Christ cannot be made to fit the authority of the church as the church derives its authority from who he is. You know, same thing here. The apostle corrects an apostle, not because one is more authoritative than the other. Paul's not better than Peter, but because Peter's wrong. And Paul calls him back according to the tradition. The apostles in the church are authoritative only through the gospel and through maintaining the apostolic tradition. That's the authority that constitutes their authority and that they're continually working in. 
So who do you say that I am? It's not a question to be answered apart from history. It's not a question to be answered apart from Scripture. It's not an answer to be answered apart from the church. But none of these are themselves the answer. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of obvious. Who do you say that I am? Oh, well, you're the historical Jesus. Well, first of all, I think in the question, who do you say that I am, it demands that you answer, and the answer and its power and presence take hold within this same you. The authority is uh, takes hold in the person. So the fallacy here, we could name this fallacy three things. Historicism, I think that defines a lot of conservatism and fundamentalism. Biblicism, very similar problem that we're going to take the text. Or institutionalism, that they each misconstrue the nature of authority and truth, and thus, dare we say it, they misidentify Christ and misplace his presence. In other words, this question is an authority question, is a presence question. And the believer does not have a primary relation with history, with Scripture, or with the church. Not in any way to undermine the necessity of these things. But the primary relationship, and we are talking about relationship, is with Christ. So he's present in his identity. You know, it's only a you that comes to that point of relationship. I can't remember the page, but there's a footnote. Some or a lot of the church formation hinged on or relied on or was built on uh, the worship experience in the early church. Yeah, and I think this pertains, and actually this pertains to uh, one of the questions, and we, we do have to nuance this, that I think that this is worthy of discussion about how the Eucharist, how baptism, how these things play into in other words, what's the relationship? And it's there in Bear. I think he, he spells this out. But how, how do we nuance our understanding of the relationship between the Word and the sacraments? What, what one was that? Can you give us your answer and run that down for us? Bear acknowledges that in the opening chapters of his book, he has described the church's understanding of Christ as being grounded in its practice of interpreting scripture in light of the apostles' charisma. This interpretive practice created a distinctive scriptural image of Christ. As the apostolic era came to an end, the church lost its eyewitness account of Christ and its knowledge of Christ came to depend more exclusively on his continuing interpretation of scripture. In light of the church's knowledge of Christ being bound up in its ongoing interpretive task, Bear raises the question, how does the church know whether or not the image of Christ that results from it, its interpretive practices actually reflects the image of Christ originally deposited within the church by the apostolic charisma? As it relates specifically to the patristic era with which Bear is dealing, he wants to explore how the early church followers could be sure their theological reflections and scriptural interpretations were not changing the distinctive image of Christ handed down by the apostles. Bear answers his own question, which begins with, with the quoted sentence in your question, Paul, um, is that the only resources the early church father had to form their theological reflection was the apostolic kerygma as contained in the Old and New Testaments and, and the performance of that kerygma in sacrament, Eucharist, and baptism. It is the rule of faith articulated in the three articles of one God, the Father Almighty, 
the one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and the one Holy Spirit, and the practice in the church's interpretive and sacramental practices that provided the criteria by which these early church fathers evaluated whether or not the image of Christ was being tr- produced was true. Well, I just say, I, I mean, I think, and kind of picking up on what you were saying, I mean, the way that Eucharist and baptism, I mean, the sacraments reflect and and share in that, in, in the rule of, the authority of the rule of truth in interpreting scripture and understanding apostolic charisma is that it's, you know, the sacrament, stated behind the sacraments and the, and the, person at work in the sacraments is God in three persons. I mean, in the Eucharist, it's Jesus Christ, whose body we, whose body we eat and whose blood we drink. In baptism, it's, it's being baptized in the life and death of Christ, but through the three articles of God. Uh, you know, you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's the one word, as we understand that word, um, through the apostolic krigma in the scriptures that is enacting both in the church's interpretation of scripture through the rule of faith and in our daily practices or weekly practices of Eucharist and baptism. Let me say it this way, that these practices are a reenactment of the word. I don't, I may be quoting bear there, but that I, if I am, that's a, a wonderful phrase. Does that capture your idea there? Very much so. And I may be stronger than reenactment. I mean, they are the word in action, not us yeah. reenacting it. But yes, I, I agree. That's right. I, yeah. a, I had a short answer to that one. You mind if I read mine? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Brian. The patristics may have been tempted towards false teachings endlessly and arbitrarily, except that they were led to return always to the kerygma itself as a guide. The kerygma <laughs> informed everything they encountered and practiced as a church. This central hypothesis and the outflow of statements to which it leads about the Trinity and the dual nature of Christ infused the worship and the pedagogy of the early church before, during, and after the formation of the canon. Yeah, participation. And Drew, explain your your comment. Uh, I I had just run across this word a little while ago, so it, it jumped back into my mind when you were saying you know, more than reenactment, sort of, I guess, reenactment as if you were there at the time, sort of in a, in a, almost as a previous existence, not just memorializing it, but memorializing it in such a way that you can actually be present at the time. That's how I understand amnesis. Kierkegaard says that we have to become uh, contemporaneous with the events, is the way that Kierkegaard puts it, right? So whenever we're we're confronted with the gospel stories that become contemporaneous, in other words, to kind of put yourself in the midst of, um, you know, the the narratives in in some sort of mystical way, I guess, right? By participation. I, I like that idea of being contemporaneous but i'm also i'm I just raised a question in my mind i don't think we have to stretch ourselves backward right in other words christ is contemporaneous with us there's the real presence you know this is the big debate is the real well everything we're talking about is real presence you know yeah reenactment is not a strong enough word here is the real presence of Christ we're enacting or that we're participating in or that here's we're the embodying How about yeah. re- embodying yeah the the modern errors 
I'm assuming, like the original heresies. In other words, I think we have to continue. I think that you know, partly what is happening in Scripture, what's happening on the, under, with the apostolic fathers, they're challenged by this heretical thinking. And, of course, the heretical thinking always does the same thing. That is, that we lose the real presence of Christ in one way or another. In the original heresies, that's obvious, you know, just the way that they're talking about Christ, that either he's not fully human or he's not divine, or that he's both human and divine, but those characteristics are separate. And, and in each instance, what we're losing is what we're talking about is the presence of Christ with us, mm -hmm. God with us, Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. And so part of the mm -hmm. des description of God as Trinity is, you know, I, we don't want to, in other words, I think we can get caught up in mechanics and how kind of uh, Fry's point. We've got to state the hypothesis up front that God is present with us in the identity of Christ. And I think this is really the, the, what the church fathers are doing. They're saying, okay, this is what's necessary, but they're beginning with the hypothesis that Jesus is the God-man. And that implies a, 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 an understanding of the world and the Trinity and uh, anthropology. The human, you know, the human Jesus in all of these, of course, and, and another way of saying the same thing is there, it's all in some way a denial of the cross, that God died on the, you know, God-man died on the cross. David, by the way, this is what Jack Cottrell, he uh, talked about the cross of Christ, and he described Christ in his deity witnessing the death of the human Jesus. But the deity of Christ was untouched by the death of the human Jesus. In other words, it's heresy. It's just out-and-out out heresy. There is the splitting of the person of Christ. You know, I think our mistake is to try to, oh, let me run this down for you. No, I think our hypothesis is, as you know, Paul says, that here is deity, here is the God-man. He, he died and was raised again. That's our hypothesis. That's what we're working with. And then from that, if you, you know, we can extrapolate. I think in essence, the false teachings that Ignatius is dealing with, that John is dealing with, they're a denial of, of the cross, or if we put it in terms of the presence of God, that God cannot be said to be present in pain, suffering, and death. It's almost like the false teachers, uh, are always wanting to split up humanity and divinity in some way. You were mentioning uh, people splitting up the humanity and deity of Jesus at the cross. So we can say, can we, in some sense, that God died at the cross? That's Luther's phrase, and that's the part of Luther I happen to like. And, of course, that's going to go bad, too, very quickly, that with Hegel, and then with Friedrich Nietzsche, they're all actually playing off Luther's phrase. Mm. So, you know, you almost have to, yeah, say that, but then say what you don't mean by that. It's almost necessary. But I think what we mean by that is what we've been talking about here. You know, we've talked about this in the past. The way that we described it is that death itself divides heaven from earth. 
death is the play the one place that we you know in many places in the old testament that is a kind of impossibility in jewish thought for god to be there there are places you know there's kind of a different voices in the old testament so yes matt that that is correct but the idea is that death is defeated that that uh god the son occupies that he defeats death i wasn't quite sure about you know ignatius seemed to imply that you know for those who took a different path they would suffer death so whether the abolition of death was for for all humanity or just for those who were um, followers of Christ, I think we can make of it of what we will. But he definitely says that apart from Christ, you're dead, and death mm-hmm. is the reality that that you face. And he's going to talk about his own martyrdom as birth, and this becomes a kind of theme in martyrs that they, they're going to talk about, I can't wait to, to have true life, to be born. There is, in their thinking, an annihilation of death. That is, they all, that, that it's almost abolished in their thinking. It's defeated in their thinking, so much so that their own death, you know, and this becomes the, the startling thing. You know, he, Ignatius goes into deep, great detail, the delight he's going to take in being slaughtered. Mm. He's going to be ground up like the wheat. He's going to be made bread like Jesus. And wow, you know, these guys were delighting in the idea of, of being martyrs for Christ. And so clearly, when I say fear of death, I like to, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, kind of existentially. But when they're saying fear of death, they mean they're going to march into the, the Colosseum and face down the beast and that do it with tranquility, that the way that they die in the face of these tortures, they mean very literally, they're facing down a torturous, uh, excruciating death. And in the way that they do that, they see that as, again, a reconstitution, a a reenactment. Again, Mm. not a strong enough word, but they are Christ facing down death. Yeah, interesting enough, Ignatius always refers to himself in his letters as the God carrier. That's good, yeah. Yeah, in the the famous icon of him with the lion eating him, uh, it says, St. Ignatius, the God bearer. Mm. Run down, what do you make of that? Well, I, I make of it two things. One... He's being marched across. He's in, he's in an imperial procession being crossed, marched across Asia Minor back to Rome as a prisoner. As in a, in a pagan religious procession, it would be led by someone carrying the image of God. And ironically or not, he's bearing the image of Christ who oh, is God. Oh, so, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. And I also, and it goes back to the, I think what you've been talking about this whole time is Christ as the coming one. And so he's always coming, um, and and Ignatius, I don't think, sees a difference. I mean, Christ is coming in him and being an image in him um, through his martyrdom and through his witness. I mean, there's another phrase in, in his letter to the Philadelphians. He says, for me, the archives, that is the, the Old Testament, are Jesus Christ, the sacred scriptures, his cross and death and his resurrection, and the faith which comes from him. 
by which I desire by your prayer to be righteous. So reading the scriptures correctly, they become Jesus Christ. His martyrdom, his march to martyrdom, his suffering for the faith, he becomes Jesus Christ. and becomes, you know, it's like Paul saying when he encounters Christ in the road to Damascus and Christ says, why are you persecuting me? When he's talking about the Christians that have been martyred. So the, the becomes, I take a little bit loosely, like he's not actually Christ, but we become an image bearer like Christ. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Well, in Colossians 1, I mean, this is what St. Paul calls the mystery of the gospel, right? He says, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so I think that this scares us maybe a little bit sometimes um, when we're talking about this stuff. But it's my understanding that, that Christ dwells in us. This is a profound mystery, right? But the, and we're made in God's image. But only, not only that, you know, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that, we're, uh, that Christ dwells in us, that uh, you know, Christ says in Matthew 25, when you did it to the least of the, one of these, you were doing it unto me. There is a, there's something wonderful here that the various, you know, religions of the world try to make sense of, but that is that, that God will be all in all and that that in Christians is already, uh, right. That that's hopefully what's happening, right. Precisely what's happening is that Christ is becoming, uh, we're becoming filled with Christ, uh, that we're always giving birth to Christ, that we're, being God bearers, that we're always participating in the life of God and, you know, that we're the body of Christ, right? So there's all this language that uh, is strong language uh, in the New Testament about how God is incarnate in and through the church, right? Paul says that Christ may be formed in you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and what I said tonight, I don't want to take away from that, any of that, you know, they're going to talk about Scripture as the incarnation, the church as incarnation, and that we're the continued incarnation. It's almost that parousia almost takes on a different meaning. It's almost as if the parousia has commenced in in the life of the Christian. The unveiling. Yeah. Uh, you know, you are gods, right? Theosis. Like, isn't this what we're talking about? We're talking about unification with god uh i can't claim to have you know <laughs> achieved uh, achieved it but that's i think that that is the hope of that's what paul calls the hope of glory christ in you theosis the being intimately as bound up with as possible with god and with one another and with all of creation uh, is the hope of glory that's um, it that's it uh, there's a quote on 75 from bear where he mentions the exchange and the solidarity and so it, it goes both ways. Theosis is the end result of it. He says, the most important soteriological model which nourished this increasingly focused theological reflection was that of healing and salvation through sharing, solidarity, and exchange. The basic pattern can be found in many passages from Scripture and is exemplified in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So the God-man, the results are, are both, or they're implicit. It's all right there. It's contained in that. That if he becomes man and transforms death itself, transforming life itself, then our life in him is becoming, well, it's theosis. 
Yeah. I'm glad you read that phrase. I really like that phrase from Barry. Yeah, solidarity and exchange just really packs a punch there for me. And he That's why if we take the uh, yeah, if we take the Eucharist seriously, right? That uh, that the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, in other words, the Eucharist is nothing short of theosis, right? Because what's happening is is that you're taking the uh, the pure body and precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ into our own self. He is becoming. Uh, we're being joined with him quite, li- you know, ontologically. We're being transubstantiated. Yeah, <laughs> transfigured. That's right. I mean, transfigured into the. Uh, from glory to glory, into the image of Christ, into the person of Christ. We all want, that's what we all want, right? Is to be uh, completely filled with our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Great, great class. Thank you. Everyone. Appreciate it. Nice. Great class. Peace be with you all. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.